It's my privilege to be able to stand before you and open up the Word of God. What a joy to be able to open it up. And we're going to open it up to Revelation chapter 4. I wonder if you've ever wondered what it will be like in heaven. For those of you who are born again believers, I dare say it's something that you think about all the time. I hope it is. We're just pilgrims passing through this land and uh, our citizenship, our uh, inheritance is all in heaven. And so if you're not a born-again believer here this morning, everything you've got is here on this earth. There is nothing else because uh, there is no heaven for you. But as born-again believers, what will it be like in heaven? So please open your Bibles to Revelation 4, which happens to be the beginning of the third scene of the book of Revelation. In fact, it's scene 3, Act 1. I was trying to think, is it Act 1, Scene 3, or Scene 3, Act 1? Act 1, Scene 3, there you go, okay. It's Act 3, Scene 1, so I better make a note of that. So it's Act 3 in the book of Revelation. So let's just recap, see where the other acts began back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19. Just a quick recap, just one verse there, Revelation 1 19. Therefore write the things which you have seen. Now this is the Lord talking to uh, the Apostle John. Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now in this verse we've learnt from the Lord himself that the revelation is divided into three acts. In the first act John was told to write the things which you have seen and we've looked at that. That covered the vision of the Lord in chapter 1 if you remember that far back. The second act was the things which are and still are by the way. And that is the church age, the things which are. It occupied chapters 2 and 3, if you remember, which are the letters to the seven churches we have been looking at, believe it or not, for the last year. Doesn't time fly? And so we have the, the first act is John's vision of the Lord. The second act was the church age and everything we learnt from those churches. Then we have the third act. John was told to write down the things which will take place after these things. And so it's to this scene we come to in chapter 4, the beginning of what will take place after these things. Actually, I'd like to just put it a bit into context. The real emphasis of the third act of the revelation of Jesus Christ really begins with a sealed scroll in chapter 5 verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. But it's not until chapter 6 that we'll see the breaking open of those seven seals. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come! And so to put this 4, 5 and 6 into context, chapters 4 and 5 are really the setting of the scene for an earth-shattering occasion. 
the breaking of the seven-sealed scroll by the Lamb of God that will be handed to him by God himself. And believe me, it will be earth-shattering. It will be earth-destroying when God the Father hands the Lamb of God the seven-sealed scroll. We have more of that later on. But for now, we have a different scene. Now we have a scene starting in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, which is going to set the scene for the breaking of that scroll. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Twice in this verse, at the beginning, at the end, we're told that John is now going to reveal to us through God what will take place after these things. So what are these things that chapter 4 comes after? Well, for the past year, We've studied about the church, the church, and the church, and the church. But here, in chapter 4, verse 1, whoosh, the church is gone. There's nothing mentioned about the church after this verse. The only time the church will now get a mention is in chapter 19, when Jesus Christ comes back with his church so to come back with his church the Lord must first or we must first go up to the Lord that makes sense doesn't it we need to go up to the Lord so in chapter 19 we can come down with the Lord and from chapter 4 verse 1 there is no more mention of the church I believe the scriptures teach that what must take place after these things is an illustration of what is going to happen to us, God's people, when the church age has run its course. I don't know when the church age will run its course. I have no idea. Only the Father knows that. But what will happen is heaven will open there will be a voice like the sound of a trumpet and the saints will be caught up into heaven. The Apostle Paul taught us that. You might like to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. We're going to be going through, particularly back to the Old Testament as we go through Revelation. Revelation is very much based on the Old Testament. If we don't know the Old Testament, we'll never pick up what Revelation is talking about so we will keep going back to it let's look at first first thessalonians 4 16 this is what the apostle paul taught for the lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What a great comfort those words are. 
to know that those who have died in Christ, they're not going to be left behind. And he was explaining, they were going to go first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so once we're in heaven with our Lord, after what we term as the rapture in this church, the Lord's judgment of the earth can begin. Once his church is taken up, the judgment will begin. And that begins in chapter 6 of Revelation, the judgment of the earth. But before God pours out that wrath, he gives us a glimpse into glory and permits us to hear the, the worshipping creatures in heaven as they praise God. And so as we now go back to Revelation chapter 4, the first thing we see is that John is allowed to see into heaven. What he sees is an open door which enables him to look into that very place. Now in the scriptures, we have other people being able to see into heaven. This is not the first time that the door of heaven has been opened. Daniel caught a glimpse of God. Isaiah and Ezekiel had a great view of of God into God's throne room. You might remember that Stephen was being stoned. As he was being stoned, he looked up. And in Acts 7.55, he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing by the right hand of God. What encouragement for him as he's being stoned. The Lord opened up heaven and he was able to see the Son of God standing before the right, at the right hand of God the Father. Paul also, at least a friend of his, he says, went into heaven. But he wasn't allowed to say anything. He was told to not write anything, don't write anything. But John, he's able to explain as much as he can in language that was the only way he could explain it. But this time, John not only sees into heaven like Stephen, not only sees into heaven like Ezekiel and Isaiah, this time John is summoned into heaven. And this is very significant. He heard a voice like a trumpet saying to him, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And so we must understand as we now reach the chapter, the chapter 4 of Revelation that this, because of this invitation... Everything John sees from now on is from the perspective of being in heaven. Please understand that. In other words, what John sees is what we will see when we're caught away to be with Christ. This is significant in understanding the book of Revelation. Because as it, it means as we read this book from chapter 4 onwards, we're no longer looking at things from the standpoint of time. We're now going to be looking at things from the standpoint of eternity. And that's what makes this book of Revelation both fascinating and sometimes difficult to interpret. In eternity, unlike time, there's no prescribed sequence of events. In time, we're locked into patterns which logically follow one another. 
Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday. The pattern can't be broken. It can't be broken at all, unless you're H.G. Wells, when you can go back in time. But we can only go forward in the present. But in eternity, that's no longer true. You see, when we think of heaven, we think of heaven uh, as, a, as a time place. We project the time conditions of our earth into heaven. And so we think of it as some type of extended period of time where we'll be able to be occupied and doing our favourite things as long as we like. But that's not like it is. In heaven, things occur when they're spiritually ready to be manifested. I don't know how to put it any other way except the way that I was told once that, and young people don't even know what a roll of film is these days, I suppose. It's all digital. But a roll of film from a movie, you can see the movie at the start and you can see the movie at the, at the end if, you held, if your arms were long enough. And you could go to any point along that movie on this roll of film just by looking at it. And someone explained to me once, that's what heaven and eternity is like. You can go forward, you can go backward, you can come to the middle, you can go wherever you like. Heaven is not a time place. In heaven, circumstances, situations will jump backwards and forwards and that's what the book of Revelation does. The series of judgments that are going to follow after chapter 6, the, the seven-sealed book, the sounding trumpets, the pouring of the bowls of the wrath of God, they don't necessarily follow one another in chronological succession. We must recognise that when we try to interpret this book. And I'm sure it'll become clearer as we get further along, but it's an important point that we try to remember. You see, heaven is not some distant planet. It's not on something somewhere else. Heaven is another dimension of existence right here and right now. It's a realm of being that is beyond our senses. But when John saw a door open into heaven, he was permitted to see into that dimension that's present all the time. When Stephen saw it, he was able to see into that dimension that is present all the time and more importantly, which governs the visible affairs of this earth. We must learn to think of heaven that way. We must. We must also understand at this point is that heaven, the heaven that John is taken to is not the place that we think of when we sing of streets of gold and pearly gates with trees of flowing rivers. Now that is a description of the New Jerusalem which we will get to in chapter 20. We're going to read about it but it's not the place we will be going to first. That's the new heaven and the new earth. The tribulation comes first. So when we get to heaven, what's it going to be like? Are you going to see those streets of gold? What is it that you think will attract you or get your attention? Do you think it's going to be the girly, the girly, the pearly gates? Well, they could be girly pates, I'm not sure. But the, is that what's going to grab your attention? Well, I'm here to say that no. It's going to come later. What's going to catch our attention when the Lord brings his church to be with him is a person. 
And if we learn anything from the study of the book of Revelation, I want you to learn that this is not necessarily a book of prophecy. Prophecy is there. But this book is all about the revealing of Jesus Christ. And if we study this book with that thought in mind that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ the way that God wants us to, then we should come away with a greater love and a deeper appreciation for Jesus Christ. Not worried about the prophecies, but a deeper relationship with our Lord. Yes, the information about the future and prophecy is there, but if that's what we focus in on, we're going to miss the whole point of the book of Revelation. I tell you, the thing that's going to make heaven heaven is the fact that our Lord is going to be there. Amen? So let's stay with the text and look at what John saw when he was actually taken into that dimension of existence called heaven. Revelation chapter 4 verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. There's a lot of likes in there, isn't there? The only way that, God, uh, that John could explain what he was seeing is by things he knew. Things that came to his mind as he saw them. Immediately John came to be in the Spirit. We've seen that before, haven't we? In chapter 1, verse 10. Just have a quick look at chapter 1, verse 10. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So John was in the Spirit when he saw the, uh, saw the Lord. He now is also in the Spirit. So being in the Spirit again shows that whatever that condition is, and we didn't get to an answer in verse 10 of chapter 1, so we're not going to get to an answer now. But whatever being in the Spirit means, it's an intermittent being in the Spirit. John was in the Spirit when he saw, the, saw his Lord, and now, in verse 4, he was now again in the Spirit. After coming out of the Spirit, he's now in the Spirit again. So I'm not going to even speculate what that means, except to say that it's a... It's obviously uh, something he was in that he's been able to be transported to heaven and to be able to see the Lord. But John had ceased to be in the Spirit, but now he was back in the Spirit. So what did John see when he was taken into heaven in the Spirit? Well, the first thing he saw, central to everything else, was the great throne and someone sitting on it. He found himself suddenly in supreme headquarters. John found himself in the control center of the universe. And it's important to remember that in spite of all that takes place on this earth, all the events you read about in the newspaper, all the events you see on TV, as exciting or as saddening as those things are, they all relate to that central throne from which God rules his universe. We must never forget that behind all humans' events is the government of God. And just to cement that, look again at verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. God is in supreme control. He is the one that orders these things. And so John's just not writing about this may happen or there's a chance it could happen. He's writing about events which will occur because they are the divine plan of God. Things which must happen. We often sing in our church, Our God Reigns. This is the theme of Revelation, Our God Reigns. But this also brings to my mind a, a fact which runs directly contrary to the thought and spirit of the age in which we live. The fact that there's a throne means that there are absolutes which can't be altered and can't be changed. They're guaranteed by the authority of the throne. Nothing man does, nothing man can do alters them in the least degree. God does not have a plan B. He is a plan A person. God is not sitting on his throne, biting his fingernails, wondering what his creation is getting up to. He's not sitting there wondering, what am I going to, what, what's Steve Grant going to do next? He maintains all his creation constantly by the authority of his throne. No matter what may happen on this earth, God is in his, on his throne and he's in complete control. John also saw that the throne was occupied, but it turns out he couldn't give a description of the one occupying it. Why couldn't he give a description? Because God the Father is spirit. He doesn't possess a body as we know it. In fact, there's no possible way for human words to describe what God is like in his essence. How could any one of us find any words that are applicable to if, God was, if we were standing before God? All John could say is, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. The jasper, similar to a brilliant diamond. The sardius, similar to a blood-red ruby. John saw a figure sitting upon the throne, but he couldn't see his features through the dazzling lights that danced about the throne. And this again is not the first time that someone has seen the throne room. Please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. He too was given the privilege of seeing the throne room of God. And in his first chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, he records a vision very similar to this one. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26. And above the firmament, above their heads, was a likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the, like, on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, as it were, the colour of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. From the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud, in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The poor man is trying to explain it, and all he can say is this is the appearance, it's like this, it's like that, it's like this. He couldn't describe it. 
Neither John nor Ezekiel could describe God's features for God is indescribable. But what they both could say was, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. As they both had the privilege of being in the throne room. Back into Revelation chapter 4, we have more description of the throne. There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. We just read that in Ezekiel. It was just like a multicoloured bow as we see in the sky today, like the appearance of a rainbow, Ezekiel said, in a cloud on a rainy day. You might remember that Genesis 19 says, The Lord set his bow in the cloud, for it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. This multicoloured bow in the sky, like this emerald bow around the throne, symbolises God's mercy, his grace, his covenant promise, even in the midst of divine judgment. And all John could do is emphasise the glory and the sovereignty of God. What an encouragement it must have been to these Christians that were reading this book. They were being persecuted. It was in the midst of tough persecution by the Romans. But it continues to be an encouragement to every age in history, to whoever has read these passages. God is on the throne. Next in verse 4, John sees what's around the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Who are these people? Who are these 24 elders sitting around the throne? Well, the word given to them were elders. Now, the word for elders here is presbyteros, And while it can be translated as an elder, as in a position of elder in a church, more than likely it's being used as a picture of an older man or an older woman. And it can be either, depending on the text. So who are these 24 older people sitting on the thrones? I believe these are people that symbolise all the people of God in heaven. Why do I think that? What can I go to in Scripture that I would come to the conclusion that those 24 people sitting around are the ones who represent all the people of God in heaven? Well, it's from what I read in the churches in chapters 2 and 3 because of the overcomers that John kept talking about. First, the presbyteros are clothed in white garments. Look back at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And we looked at that at the time. So here in verse 4 of Revelation, chapter 4 of Revelation is the culmination of that promise of our Lord's that we will all be in white garments. And these folk had crowns on their heads. Now, the Greek is the word stephanos, which is a, a wreath or a similar reward. It's not the word diadem, which is a royal crown. These crowns were stephanos. They were rewards. They were wreaths. And in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 10 of Revelation, we read, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a stephanos of life. In Revelation 3.11, we read, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your Stephanos. 
your crown, your rewards. And here in verse 4 of Revelation 4, we have the culmination of that promise of our Lord's, that we will have our Stephanos, our rewards with us. But there's one last reason why I believe the Presbyteros represents the church of a ho- as a whole is because in 1 Peter 2.9, the church is identified as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So we are a royal priesthood. And it might surprise you that back in 1 Chronicles 24, that David divided the Levitical priesthood into 24 courses to make a complete priesthood. And so I understand the 24 presbyteros seated on the thrones are the representation of the completed, resurrected and glorified priesthood of believers. David divided the priesthood into 24 courses. God divided the priesthood of believers into 24 courses. Some might believe that there are 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. I'm sorry, it just doesn't gel with me in Scripture. Before the throne, and we'll see that in a minute, is the believers. But John also sees more happenings in the court of heaven in verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. These are the very sights and sounds associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The mountain was shaking. It was great rumblings and thunders to the point where the the people were scared of the mountain. It was a scary, awesome mountain. And these sights coming out of the throne are the same, the symbol of the judgments of God. You see, our world and even some Christians, unfortunately, don't like to think of God as a God of judgment. They prefer to look at the rainbow around the throne, say, what a lovely rainbow, and ignore the lightning and the thunder and the rumblings coming out of the throne, the throne of judgment. Our God is certainly a God of grace. The first song we sang was Amazing Grace. We sing about God's grace all the time. But Romans 5.21 tells us his grace reigns through righteousness. And that was made clear on the cross where God manifested both his love for sinners and his wrath against sin. But Revelation, has the time has now come when God turns from grace in chapter 6 and he turns to judgment. All through the Bible, he's been a gracious God. He appeals to people to open their minds, to seek them, to instruct them further, to make them stop and listen and adjust to the truth. But in the end, that time will stop. In the end, God will turn to judgment. And for those of you who are not born again believers this morning, that is a horrible place to be. But in the end, when grace is taken up with the church, God will turn to judgment. That's what this book is all about. 
It's God carrying out his last warning to men because in their folly they've done evil again and again and again and finally God says that's enough. Takes his church to be with him. Judgment reigns. The symbols here of lightnings and rumblings and voices are repeated three times in the book of Revelation. And each time... They are mentioned in Revelation 8.5, Revelation 11.19 and Revelation 16.18. They represent a reference point to which the book will return to again and again and again. And when you come across those passages, you realise that you've once again come to the final scene of God's judgment of man's evil. The rest of verse 5 says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already seen that. We've seen the seven spirits of God back in chapter 1, representing, and I explained it there, the Holy Spirit in his completeness. Why is he there? Because he is the instrument of God's judgment. There was something else before the throne in verse 6. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Pure crystal sea symbolising God's holiness was the foundation of God's throne. Ezekiel saw the same thing. We don't have time to go and read it, but Ezekiel 1.22 saw the same crystal uh, spread out. We're going to meet this crystal sea again in Revelation 15, so we'll leave it till then. There were some final characters surrounding the throne from the middle of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now these are weird creatures. But don't get stuck on the weirdness of them. They're winged animals covered with eyes all over. Who are they? They're not new. Ezekiel saw the same animals or same uh, what I now know to be as angels. In Ezekiel 1.1, he talks about it for 10 verses, mainly in verse 10, as for the former, their faces each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Later on, Ezekiel calls them cherubim. You see, cherubim are not those little fat naked babies with mini wings that fly around shooting love arrows at everybody. That's not cherubim. The cherubim have just been described for you. Isaiah... If we had time, we could go and look at the sixth chapter. Isaiah des de describes the seraphim, the burning ones. Cherubim and seraphim seem to come in different combinations. Some of them have six, some of them only four. John sees these cherubim and seraphim. What are they? Who are they? Well, most likely, in every time they've seen... They're living creatures of the order of angels that are, give soul attention to God. They're in a position of watchfulness. They guard God's throne and they're swift to execute God's will and God's work. You might remember that the cherubim 
were the ones that guarded the entrance to the uh, the entrance to the garden in Genesis 3.24 so that Adam and Eve could not get back in their sin back to the tree of life. And so the seraphim were there with swords, waving them, making sure that Adam and Eve couldn't get back in the garden. Seraphim, cherubim, so wonderfully described. But don't get caught up on them. They're cherubim, they're seraphim, they're around God's throne, they do his will. And we'll see later on, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the scene is set. This is the scene that John saw. He had the throne of God. We have the description of the one sitting on the throne, the rainbow around the throne, the 24 elders clothed in white garments with crowns, Stephanos on their heads, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder coming out of the throne. Seven spirits of God there. We have before the throne a sea of something like a sea of glass. We have the round the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, waiting to do God's bidding, which they will do later on. So what is the scene set for? What is everyone waiting for? They're waiting for judgment. They're waiting for chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb. When the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice of thunder, come. But before then, we have chapters 4 and 5. And chapter 4 closes with worship all around the throne. Chapter 5 will continue with worship and praise all before the judgment begins. So we'll just look at the, the end of chapter 4 with the praise that, and then we'll, next time we'll look at the praise in chapter 5. But John heard two songs being sung by the host of heaven. The first song by the four living creatures. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Isaiah's look into the throne room, the seraphim was singing the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These seraphim, cherubim surrounding the throne, giving praise to God. They acknowledged his purity. Holy, holy, holy in the same way that Isaiah saw them. They acknowledge his power by singing, Lord God Almighty, they acknowledge his eternality by singing who was and is and is to come. He is the eternal God, no beginning, no end. And they sing about it. But John also heard a second song, this time sung by us as redeemed believers. Verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns, their stephanos, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. <coughs> the 24 elders praising God they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him in two different ways. 
First verse 10 says they're going to throw and cast their crowns before the throne. (coughs) As I've mentioned in the past, these crowns typify the rewards given to the overcomers. We've seen that in, in, um, in Revelation. Believers who will receive various crowns for faithful service during our lives on earth, we will receive crowns for our life on this earth. But in glory, we're going to give testimony to the fact that it, any merit was not from us to receive them. We were not worthy, thank you, but to God is given all the merit. How do we do that? Well, we throw those rewards that we receive and we throw them by laying them down at our Lord's feet, giving him all the glory. But also John heard the overcomers, the 24 elders, the representation of the people offering God praise for his work of creation. Verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And so as we stand before the throne, we address God as our Lord and our God. We ascribe to him worthiness to receive glory, honour and power, and God deserves and must have the praise from his creation. He deserves such praise because we owe our very existence to him. God alone has created all things. For you created all things and because of your will they existed. Creation is for God's praise and pleasure and man has no right to usurp that which rightfully belongs to God. (coughs) You see, man plunged creation into sin. And obviously we did that at the fall. And God's good creation in Genesis 1.31 turned into today's groaning creation in Romans 8.22 because of sin. But because of Christ's work on the cross, one day this earth will be delivered and it will become a glorious creation. And we can see that in Romans 8.18-24. You see, God has not abandoned his creation. Amen? He made all things and made them for his own purpose. He has not abandoned his creation. At times, John's readers must have thought that evil is in control. If only we could feel what they were going through, the burning of, of Rome and the, the, the Christians all being burnt, everything that was happening to them, persecution, evil. They must have thought that evil was in control. It's sometimes we fall into that same trap and think that evil is in control. Yes, evil is very real. And Satan is like a roaring lion, roaring, going about to see whomever he can devour. He is very real. But the divine purpose of God still stands and will always stand. 
And I tell you what, when we get to heaven, we're going to know who's worthy of praise. And that song we sang before the sermon, maybe we sang it and we loved the tune, we loved the words. We're going to sing it again, but this time with the knowledge that a lot of those words we're going to be singing to our God. Focus on them. Let's practice now what we're going to do in the future. Praise our God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you in the knowledge that John was able to be taken into the throne room, into that place, Lord, that we will one day see when the time is right. But while you still have us on this earth, Lord, help us to always recognise God as being the sovereign in control. Help us to recognise that one day his grace will come to an end and that judgment will be brought upon the earth and its people who do not know you. I pray for those here this morning who may not have never asked for salvation. And they never have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray for them particularly this morning, Lord, particularly in the knowledge that one day grace will cease, that his church will be taken up to be with him. Father, I want none here to be left behind. And so I pray for them. I pray that by your spirit that you will work in their lives and hearts to give them no rest, no peace, until they come to that, that wonderful conclusion that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray for them. We all pray for them, Lord. We all have family members who do not know you. And so I pray, Father, that you would bless our time together, help us to remember those who do not know you. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.